The UN says that humanity stands on the brink of catastrophic man-made climate change. But is it true? Not a chance. But we do stand on the brink of catastrophic government policies that threaten to ruin the nation our forefathers built and defended against tyranny. So what drives the climate scare, Jay? Besides simple ignorance, the scare is driven by corporate greed and the desire of governments to control all aspects of our lives, Tom. Is this part of something more sinister? Indeed it is. Whether it's climate change or a pandemic or socialism, it really means sacrificing your rights and accepting the tyranny of the fourth branch of government, the bureaucracy. It must be stopped. This is The Other Side of the Story with Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris of the International Climate Science Coalition. Across the Western world, governments, mainstream media, academics, and even financial institutions are attacking coal, oil, and natural gas. But Jay, surely the benefits of increasing fossil fuel use far outweigh any conceivable negative impacts. It's crazy. Uh, insanity is the only word that can be applied. And the fact that powers of evil have convinced the majority of the world that there's something wrong with fossil fuels that has given us life as we know it today, it, it, uh, it boggles my mind. It gives me enough material to write about week after week in different publications, little by little, hoping that I'm convincing the public of the insanity of it. And life would not be what it is today without it. And trying to eliminate fossil fuels ultimately would be eliminating life on earth if brought to full extent. It's never going to happen. But in the effort, we're causing tremendous damage to pretty much everybody and everything on the planet. And it is really exciting that we have a man who has decided to take on the topic in a very different way and hoping also to bring sanity. I'm looking forward to you introducing our audience to Alex Epstein, who has gone about working to defend our way of life through philosophy as much as through uh, science. So Tom, go ahead and introduce Alex and I'll start uh, questioning him. Yeah, for sure, Jay. Our guest today is Alex Epstein a philosopher and energy expert who argues that human flourishing should be the guiding principle of energy and environmental progress. He's the author of the new book, Fossil Future, and also the New York Times bestseller, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. He's also the creator of energytalkingpoints.com, a source of powerful, well-referenced talking points on energy, environmental, and climate issues. Alex has made his moral case for fossil fuels at dozens of campuses, including Harvard, Yale, Stanford, and Duke, which of course is his alma mater. He's also spoken to employees and leaders at dozens of Fortune 500 companies. So welcome to the show, Alex. Hi, guys. Great to be with you. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, Alex, you studied philosophy at Duke. I'm guessing while you were in school there, you had uh, no idea that you would create your career in the energy field. How did you become interested in studying fossil fuel from a moral perspective almost a decade ago? Yeah, in, in college, I definitely had no idea that I would be interested in energy. 
let alone fossil fuels, which I didn't exactly have a hostility to, but I viewed it as this is kind of an old thing. And why are we kind of still using this? And shouldn't we use nuclear? And I am, like you, a very big fan of nuclear and its potential. So yeah, I definitely did not expect this at all. The one thing I did get in college, I didn't get this from my philosophy classes, but from my study uh, of philosophy outside, uh, the university was really understanding that current environmental philosophy is very anti-human. And this was driven home to me. Jay, I know you, you've been involved in that book, Rational Writings on Environmental Concerns, which is that you know amazing book and has a lot of really good pro-human environmental philosophy in it. And well, I, I you didn't know, read- Alex, I'm going to interrupt you there because it's so thrilling to hear you, you say that. Yeah, I wrote that book over 20 years ago with the help of 50 other scientists, uh, all of whom agreed with me that their science was being distorted and uh, needed to be straightened out. And that was the result of the book. And it's, it's a, a great compliment to me and thrilling that uh, it helped you getting started. Yeah, I wish there were a current version of that because it really there is really nothing like it in terms of people who are trying to overcome anti-human environmental philosophy and how it distorts science. And I'm sure we'll get into some of the details. But the thing I realized in college, I, I learned it first from some objectivists, which are followers of Ayn Rand, and I, I consider myself in that same school. I was just learning about it at the time, but I read some of their works on modern environmental thinking. And the point that really struck me was this idea that the essence, uh, the essential goal of the modern environmental movement is to eliminate human impact on earth. And yet human beings survive and flourish by impacting the earth uh, massively, uh, but productively and beneficially. And so it just occurred to me that if you have a movement that's hostile toward human impact, and that's essential to survival, it's an anti-human movement. So I didn't know anything positive about fossil fuels. I wasn't into the issue, but I did have that very deep suspicion of the modern environmental movement, knowing that it has an anti-human goal. And that made me suspicious, particularly of its policy prescriptions, because if you have hostility toward human life, then I don't trust your recommendations. And one, one line I remember, I don't think it was in your book. It might've been, but it was in his other writings. George Reisman, one of the collaborators in that book, has a line about, you know, you wouldn't take advice from a doctor who's on the side of the germs. And so I wouldn't take advice from someone who's anti-human on policy for the same reason. So that was a big influence, just realizing that there's pro-human environmental philosophy and anti-human, and I was pro-human and many leaders were anti-human. Um, and then eventually what happened is I, I would write, a, I would apply philosophy to every issue imaginable coming out of college, working as an independent writer, uh, working, I later worked at the Ayn Rand Institute as a fellow, uh, and I wasn't specifically interested in energy, but I was doing some research for a project on John D. Rockefeller's antitrust case. And to understand his rise, I needed to understand the rise of the oil industry. And that really taught me two things because the oil industry so positively transformed human life so quickly. One is just that low cost, reliable energy is so beneficial to human life. You know, it can take a dark countryside and make it light. And the other thing is low cost, reliable energy is hard to produce. There were actually many, many competitors to oil before oil came on the market, but oil was the first one that was truly cost effective for the masses. It really opened up my mind to the possibility that, hey, maybe the reason we're using oil today is that it's still the most cost effective way of providing this incredibly beneficial value. Mm -hmm. Can you say a little bit about Anne Rand? Because I don't know if our listeners will actually know who she is. Of course. So Ayn Rand is a very interesting combination. She was a novelist and a philosopher. 
So it, it's kind of an inconceivable thing to think of today, although this occurs somewhat throughout history where you have somebody, I mean, it's not quite like J.K. Rowling wrote, had one of the most popular philosophies, you know, the author of Harry Potter, but she had books that The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged in particular that sold millions and millions of copies and were extremely, extremely philosophical. And her, her perspective was that she wanted to be a fiction writer, but that to create the kinds of characters that she thought were best required certain innovations in philosophy, first in, in terms of particularly in ethics, in terms of really having an idea of individualism, where individuals neither are masters of others nor servants of others, but where everyone can independently pursue their self-interest in a productive way. Like she really developed uh, that kind of thinking in the moral realm. And then she eventually developed a whole philosophy which she named objectivism, which I believe has a lot of insights in politics and ethics, and also in what's called epistemology, theory of knowledge. And just one thing in particular that I really learned from her is what, and this is very relevant to environmental issues, is called the intellectual package deal. And this is the idea of a term that combines two things that are essentially different, but it combines them to make them seem the same and confuse you. So for example, the term green is an example of this where you're not, which really means minimize impact or minimal impact. And it's not clear, are you minimizing impact to benefit humans or are you minimizing impact on the planet you know, putting the rest of nature over humans. And so people think, oh, I'm doing something green and it's not clear. Wait, are you cleaning up our environment and enjoying nature for humans? Or do you just want us to not touch the earth at all? Because one can be pro-human versus the second is anti-human. So I I really found her insightful. And, and again, on these environmental issues, she was she and, and her followers were the first people to identify to me that the goal of the modern environmental movement eliminating impact on earth is a fundamentally anti-human goal. And that, that really prepared me when I, when I started learning about energy to A, regard the energy as very important, B, regard the energy industry as very moral, and C, Tom, to go back to your, your initial comment, which I think is profound in a certain way, because you talked about the benefits of fossil fuels. And yet one of my contentions is almost nobody talks about that. But having a very pro-human environmental philosophy made me notice the benefits of fossil fuels and notice that so few people are thinking about it the way that you were framing it. Thinking about, hey, how do the benefits compare to any negative impacts? Most of our, what I call our knowledge system, our institutions that are supposed to give us expert knowledge, totally fail to consider the benefits of fossil fuels. But because I had such a pro-human philosophy and environmental philosophy, the benefits of fossil fuels just shocked me how amazing they were. Mm -hmm. I think our audience, if they're not familiar with Ayn Rand, her most famous book, most certainly, is Atlas Shrugged. And it's an 11-page novel that's just nonstop. <laughs> 1100. Philosophy. 1100 is correct. I love the first 700. I thought it got a little soap opery from 700 to 1100, but it changed my life. I read it as an undergraduate at Princeton, and it is one of the three books that virtually controlled uh, all of my life. But I, you're mentioning her uh, makes me think of her in, in a comparison that uh, few people have uh, be aware of. You may be if you're a student of her life, but I absolutely loved everything she said. I reveled in it. She was just the greatest philosopher in my mind, but I disliked her as a person. That reminds me of Donald Trump. People who have clear minds know he was an outstanding president 
for the reasons of things you were talking about of making life better in our nation and for all people. His personality, on the other hand, uh, is, is, can be very repulsive to a lot of people. And if you were to study the life of Ayn Rand, you might agree with me. Uh, I didn't care for her as a personal person. Did, for the did, way she did, you know, did, you, did you know her? I'm curious. I did not know her, but I did know fairly well her two assistants that helped her write the book. Their, their names have slipped me. My wife and I had dinner with them at the 50th anniversary of uh, Atlas Shrugged that we went to at the uh, Ayn Rand Institute. Their names have slipped me. But uh, I read everything about her, the different biographies that one of her assistants eventually wrote about her. And uh, just as many people didn't approve of Trump, I personally am very harsh on her. And yet everything else you say, I would agree with. So will everybody who reads Atlas Shrugged have their mind elevated, I think, to your level of human flourishing that we're going to talk more about in this hour. Let me just say, so I definitely don't hold those two equivalent for various reasons. So I can definitely see how Ayn Rand would rub certain people the wrong way. I don't think most of the biographies of her are objective at all for you know reasons that are beyond the scope of what we're talking about. And in particular, I really find her life inspiring and that this is somebody, English was her third or fourth language. She came over from the Soviet Union where she was an in, outspoken individualist who would have been killed had she stayed there. You know, she learned English, became this amazing writer, developed this philosophy. And, and I do think that when you're thinking about people who are really innovative and have new ideas, there are a lot of ways in which it's hard for them to get along and it's hard for them to judge other people. So uh, I, I do have a very different view of, of her history, and I find her more, ins you know, quite inspirational. But in any case, I think people should definitely read Atlas Shrugged, both because it's illuminating on the issues we're talking about here. Uh, but also, if you read the second half of that book, it feels like it's describing the supply chain crisis today. It really shows oh, a, a no total question. understanding of how the world works and how no it question. goes downhill. Yeah, it was so prescient. It's amazing. It's hard to believe someone, whatever I was written in the early 50s or yeah. could have foreseen. It's kind of like George Orwell foresaw everything. Uh, I thought Atlas shrugged and Ayn Rand foresaw it perhaps even more precisely in terms of the economic problems that the uh, country is doing. But I'd like to hear maybe some of your, uh, your other mentors as you went along. Uh, I've had a mentor that I probably passed away before uh, you got into it, but you would know his name, Julian Simon was a close friend and mentor of mine who passed away too early, but he played a role in, in much of the environmental work that I did. And his recognition many, many decades ago that man was the best thing that ever happened to the earth, that by and large, nature is evil, nature wants to kill man, and man makes life better. And the more people we have, the more mental power we have to improve life. And there were few people that recognized the reality of that. And I would imagine you touch on it frequently in your book. I like Julian Simon a lot. I read him later when a lot of my ideas were more developed. So I certainly found him insightful but it wasn't as, as formative. Some other people who influenced me quite a bit were, you know, one of your collaborators in that book, Rational Readings on Environmental Concerns, Rational Readings or Writings, I forget which one it is. But, uh, rational that, Readings. Yeah, he 
he has a lot of really good writings on modern environmental thinking and a lot of really interesting analysis. He has this giant book. If you think my book or even Atlas Shrugged is big, uh, his book Capitalism is even bigger. And I definitely I haven't read all of it, but I, I've read you know qu quite a few portions of it. And I think the analysis of the modern environmental movement is very, very impressive. Uh, but in particular, he has a lot of positive alternative content. So, for instance, talking about the Earth as a giant ball of resources that's really just up to our ingenuity or potential resources, I should say, and that it's really up to our intelligence to transform them into resources. When you get that point, whether you get it through Ayn Rand, who has it in different forms, George Reisman, Julian Simon, that is a profound shift in the way you view the world forever going forward. Because if you view the world as having unlimited potential resources, you become so much more optimistic and so much more objective about what the future can be. And then when things are going wrong, what's going wrong? It's always that we're not running out of the resource because we're not going to run out of the raw material of resource per se. As such, we're going to run out of freedom, freedom to transform raw materials, raw matter and energy into resources. That's such a profound thing. And then another person in energy, the person I learned the most about most quickly in energy, is a guy who also died too early, Peter Beckman, who died in 1993. He had the, the, the newsletter Access to Energy. And I one of the smart things I did when I started getting interested in energy is I just got all those issues. And I, I a lot of them, I, I think I got primitive technology to translate them to audio. I just inhaled those. And I find, this is a piece of advice for people getting new to a field, if you find somebody you think is really, really good in a field, you should spend a disproportionate amount of time mastering their material. I think some people will read too widely, not in scope, but in terms of it'll be too equally distributed. And my view is I find someone, if I have, I'll read everyone, but then if I find one or two people who are really good, I'll just master what they know. And immodestly, I suggest people do that with my stuff, particularly with Fossil Future. If you think that my stuff stands out in the field, don't just read Fossil Future once, read it a few times, look at other things uh, that I've done, look at, you know, look through everything on energytalkingpoints.com because if somebody is good and, and they're in the model of what you like, they can save you a lot of time. The, the final person who influenced me a lot, or not the final, but a guy I worked with at the Ayn Rand Institute where I worked from 2004 to 2011, uh, their head philosopher, Ankar Gatte, he, he also has a background in economics in addition to being a philosophy PhD. And he really impressed upon me, I mean, many things, but just the idea that human beings have made the earth better, including safer from environmental threats, including climate. And I just, there's kind of two points. One is that human beings make nature abundant in resources. And two is they make it far scarce in threats. And so I feel like I got the first point from Ayn Rand and George Reisman and ultimately Julian's and eventually Julian Simon as well. And then Ankar and some other people helped me with the point that we also make nature a place that's less and less threatening, contrary to the narrative that we make nature more threatening over time with our actions and the idea that Nate, that we make resources scarce. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you've, you've nailed all the top points there, which is amazing to me. Uh, I don't know that I have the philosophical intellect to have done what you've done in gathering it all together. When I wrote Rational Readings, I recognized the problems that I face uh, of veracity in every scientific environmental area. And I went around looking for scientists and said, uh, have you battled uh, people who didn't see science 
correctly and would distort it? And would you like to write about it with me? And I actually got 50 scientists to agree. They all contributed original material. And we wrote the book and I sold it to a publisher very quickly, who at the last minute said, gee, we'd have to change the title because they didn't like the idea of rational readings because it inferred that other things were irrational. Well, that was exactly (laughs) our point. And the publisher at the last minute pulled out. And I said, I am delighted you're pulling out. I can sell this book in less than 24 hours because others have seen portions of it, knew what I was doing. And in less than 24 hours, Ben Rostrum bought the book, published it with the title, and uh, they were later uh, bought by uh, John Wiley. So uh, yes, it's what you're facing, but you pulled it together into one large picture and one large vision. And I, I really appreciate your idea of telling people they don't need to know a little bit about a lot of things, and it's good to concentrate and find people that write well and and bring you into the depth of topics, which you have done with Fossil Future. But in my review, I recommended that people tackle it maybe 10 pages a day. There's so much content, you just don't want to move rapidly through it. You want to absorb it. And really, every segment of it leaves you feeling optimistic because everything you're pointing at And I love this term that I really was not familiar with, which is human flourishing. Everything you're talking about leads to a better life. And of course, explains that everything the opposition is doing now is trying to essentially destroy life as we know it for reasons that are horrible and evil, misguided. Uh, You can call it a, a lot of things and you bring it out uh, very much. How do you feel about my approach with your book? And, and so explain a little more about the approach in writing the book. I love the approach. I mean, I, I, you know, I wrote the book in a deliberate way and I was aware that some people might not like it as much as they liked Moral Case. I like it much more than I like Moral Case. And, and my goal in writing the book was really to make the full case for a fossil future that is a world that's using more fossil fuels going forward under a policy of energy freedom. I really wanted to make that case to somebody who expected to disagree with me. And that is a very, very difficult thing to do because what people are taught by what I call our knowledge system, the institutions that are charged with giving us expert knowledge and guidance, people are taught what I believe is 180 degrees wrong which is that we should be rapidly eliminating fossil fuels. And people legitimately want to rely on experts and tend to trust the institutions that are telling them what the expert view is, including what we should be doing going forward. So I really felt like I have my work cut out for me. And so the the progression of the book is it, it starts by announcing the conclusion, but then acknowledges, hey, you, you have every reason to be suspicious of this, given that you're told the exact opposite by all these trusted institutions. But then what I, what I start to do, the first three chapters are called framework. The first chapter is called ignoring benefits. What I start to show is, well, these institutions and their designated experts, they are clearly ignoring the benefits of fossil fuels. There's just no two ways about it. They're ignoring that fossil fuels are uniquely cost-effective, providing 80% of energy in a world that needs far more energy, 
they're ignoring how important low-cost reliable energy is. And, and as I indicated, they're ignoring how desperately needed low-cost reliable energy is. And they're doing this in realms such as agriculture, where you have, say, alleged expert Michael Mann, one of the leading figures in the world on this issue, talks about agriculture and fossil fuels and doesn't mention any benefits, even though fossil fuels feed us through diesel-powered machines and through modern fertilizer and without cheap fossil fuels, as we're seeing now, you risk starvation. So I first point out, look, these, this knowledge system is clearly ignoring the benefits of fossil fuels. Then in chapter two, I show it has a history of catastrophizing the side effects of fossil fuels. So it tends to take side effects of fossil fuels that are either not a problem or even areas that get better. So we've actually have more resources. Our environment is cleaner. We're safer from climate. These are all empirically demonstrable. Yet our knowledge system has told us for 50 years that we're going to have a resource catastrophe, an environmental quality catastrophe, a climate catastrophe, whether of cooling or warming. And so what I'm showing is they're catastrophizing these side effects. And what that shows is, among other things, is that there's a lot of distortion of the relevant science to make dangers appear far worse than they are. And also they ignore the benefits of fossil fuels in mastering dangers, such as using, say, irrigation powered by fossil fuels, heating and air conditioning powered by fossil fuels to make us safer from climate. And so that's the chapter two is catastrophizing side effects. And then chapter three goes into, well, how can it be that our trusted knowledge system is engaging in these totally crude ways of thinking about the issue and that they make no sense at all and yet they should know better. And then I, I talk about what the chapter is called the anti-impact framework, which is basically the idea that we're taught this framework or philosophy and our leaders believe it, that holds that human impact on nature is A, evil and B, self-destructive. And we've been taught to look at everything through that lens and we think of fossil fuels, we don't think of the benefits and we're not optimistic about the future. We just look at negative side effects and we expect them to be catastrophic. So there's a lot, lot to that. But I hope just even describing the first three chapters, I really appreciate your appreciation of the book, Jay. But like these are three big points that you'll really never hear fleshed out this much. And then there's still eight chapters after that. And those are all about, okay, now that we realize that we've been taught to look at this issue from an anti-human perspective that's hostile to our impact. How do we look at it from a pro-human perspective? And then what are the benefits? What are the side effects, particularly on climate? And then what are the right policies to go forward? And I'd say each chapter, the book is for, I guess, 420 pages of text, something like that. The book is not that long because I felt like writing a long book. I cut a lot. It's that long because I think every point is essential. And I do in some places use the same expressions and summarize things. And some people don't like that, like, oh, you're repeating yourself too much. But this is really written to persuade somebody who expects to disagree. And to a man, I found that all the people who say, this is going to sound self-serving, but the people who say, oh, it's too long. I find those are the people who don't understand the book very well. And I find this with other well, books too. But Alex, this is where I'm going to help you. Okay. I think your book is going to be the most important book in, in this whole gigantic area. And it, it's going to go on and have value for at least a decade and probably more. I'm an optimist. And I think the world will eventually wake up to understanding human flourishing due to fossil fuel. It's going to take a lot of years. And the problem with a single book is, you know, it's, the, it's there and it's kind of gone. I'm sure in the next two years, I'll write 10 articles right out of your book, quoting you sometimes, not other times, but giving, 
you know, you credit for all of it, trying to bring certain packages of the information to a broader public over and over again, and each time hoping more people will pick up the book and read. I cannot minimize how important this book is. The two most important books I've read this year, and probably will for many years, I reviewed together a tale of two books, yours and Mark Mills. Mark Mills is all about technology and how it will turn the world around optimistically. And I'm writing stuff from that. But uh, you took a look at this so very differently. Try to explain to our audience how a philosopher approaches the analysis of a technical problem uh, different than a scientist mode. You've already done some of it. Clearly, you come from a different perspective. And I doubt if our audience uh, has heard this topic approached in the way you've already described it. But I'm sure there's a difference between a philosophical approach to the solution of a problem and a scientific one. So philosophy really is about making you aware of what I call the framework of your thinking. A framework generically is a starting structure. What frameworks do, whether it's in the physical realm or the mental realm, is they 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 determine how you proceed. They determine a lot about everything else. So if you're building a building, the framework determines a lot of how the building ends up. And in philosophy, you can think of three different categories that a, a good philosopher, which I don't think most are good, but should be aware of. Methods, assumptions, and values. So methods is how are you thinking about things? And are you thinking about them in a way that makes sense? So part of having a philosophical approach to this issue is starting out by saying, how am I going to think about this issue? Most people just jump into an issue and they just start saying facts or they they respond to existing arguments or that I don't know what they do, but they do a lot of different things that aren't stepping back and saying, how am I going to resolve this issue? How am I going to recommend, say, in policy, the right decision? What's my methodology? So in this book, I'm really focused on, well, you need to engage in what I call full context evaluation. When you're evaluating what to do, you need to look at the benefits and side effects of your alternatives and do so carefully. So for example, when we talk about fossil fuels, we're ignoring their benefits, including their huge uh, benefits for agriculture, their huge benefits for the livability of our climate. And you cannot possibly make good decisions if you do that, just as you couldn't make a good decision about a prescription drug if you ignore the benefits or if you ignore the side effects for that matter. So one is just thinking about the method of evaluation before evaluating something. And then two, two and three assumptions and values. These are about understanding the underlying ideas that are going to affect your evaluation. So when you're, when you're evaluating something about the future, it always involves predicting different things, predicting different benefits and side effects. And the more your assumptions about the world are accurate, the more your predictions are, are likely to be accurate because you'll expect things that turn out to be generally true. And what I find in this realm of energy thinking is people tend, and climate, is they have this assumption I call the delicate nurturer assumption, which is that nature is this stable, safe, sufficient place until human beings ruin it with our impact. And our impact is going to make it this terrible place. That's a false assumption. That's not how the world works. The world is what I call wild potential. It's dynamic, deficient, and dangerous. And human impact is generally very beneficial in human terms. We make the earth a more abundant place. We make the earth a safer place. And the more we use reason, the more we can do that consistently. So, if you, But if you have this false assumption, your predictions about the future of fossil fuels are going to involve this catastrophizing that I've talked about. And then values is the third thing. When you're evaluating something, that has the term value in it. 
how you evaluate fossil fuels, good or bad, what we should do about them is going to depend on your values. And one thing I've noticed when people are thinking about the world, uh, you know, the world as a whole, the globe, the planet, our environment, is some people are operating on the goal of we should be trying to eliminate our impact on Earth. And that's the standard by which they evaluate a policy. So if they're thinking about fossil fuels, they're thinking, is this having a lot of impact? And if so, that's bad. And so they look at it that way and they have hostility and they do the same for nuclear and they do the same for hydro and they do the same for the mining involved in solar and wind. And so what you find is the more people are on this goal of eliminating human impact on earth, the more hostility they have toward all forms of energy versus if your goal is what mine is with the earth is advancing human flourishing on earth, then you have a totally different view of fossil fuels because then you'll see fossil fuels benefits as this is making the earth a much better place. So I hope these show that philosophers should examine methods and then the underlying assumptions and values and and decide on what theirs are. And so I think that's really what I've done is I've identified anti-human versus pro-human methods, assumptions, and values. And I've explicitly named the anti-human ones and refuted them. And I've explicitly named the pro-human ones and then used them to integrate and evaluate all the relevant science. Well, that's great. You know, we have to go for a break. So we'll be right back with Alex Epstein, a philosopher and energy expert who argues that human flourishing should be our guiding principles. Okay, so we'll be right back after the break. All right, you've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the pulpidone iodine-based nasal spray, Cofix RX. They talk about it because it's a product that actually works in combating colds, flus, and coronaviruses. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. It's simple. By attacking viruses where they incubate, you make it easier for your body to heal. Check out the Cofix RX banner ad on AmericaOutloud.com and save 20% by using promo code OUTLOUD. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day, yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. As Americans, we seek to form a more perfect union. To paraphrase Abraham Lincoln, we are a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And God willing, we shall not perish from the earth. AmericaOutloud.com Liberty and justice for all. So we're back with Alex Epstein, a philosophy and energy expert. He's the author of the new book, Fossil Future, that we'll link to underneath the podcast. So Alex, I'm reading about this group called the Voluntary Human Extinction Movement. And they have a logo, it says, may we live long and die out. And their actual modus operandum is this, phasing out the human species by voluntary ceasing to breed will allow Earth's biosphere to return to good health 
Crowded conditions and resource shortages will improve as we become less dense. Now, this group is actively trying to get humans to become extinct, literally. Is this sort of in the background, perhaps subconsciously, what's going on with some of the environmental movement? So this is going to seem like a controversial answer, but I think that the voluntary human extinction movement is actually a mild attempt to consistently implement the modern environmental philosophy and framework, because the goal is to eliminate human impact. And what that really means is eliminate the species that's making the impact. I I often think of it as if you saw some people saying, we want to eliminate bear impact, you'd think, well, you guys just want to kill all the bears. So if they say we want to eliminate human impact, that means as few of us as possible. It really means you want a dehumanized planet. And notice in the language that you were talking about, it talked about the biosphere returning to health. But Mm -hmm. whose health? It's the idea that there's this thing that's the biosphere that's above us and apart from us and superior from us, and that it has its own kind of health, just like a human has a health, but its health is far more important than our health. And our goal should be to make that thing healthy. So it's basically we're the cancer and the host, the important thing is the rest of the earth, is the non-human earth. So it's a fundamentally anti-human view. But the reason I say it's it's a weaker version or it's a mild version is they have this emphasis on voluntary. So we're not going to, don't worry, we're not going to kill you. We're just going to tell you to kill yourself or to tell you it would be a good thing to kill yourself or even they say live long, right? But you shouldn't, if you're ruining the earth, why should you live a long time? So they're getting rid of the real implications, which are that you should live short And that needs to be forced by the government because that's the only way their concept of a biosphere is going to be healthy. If you keep it voluntary, people aren't going to do it, as evidenced by the fact this movement has very few converts. Mm -hmm. And in particular, they don't want us to have any children. And you're seeing that actually in quite a few sources now where they're saying that the greatest way to stop climate change is to stop having children. It's crazy. They are crazy. But our listeners on a daily basis, are presented with lies about energy, the environment, carbon dioxide, and so on. How do you, in debates I'm sure you get into from time to time, deal with supposedly educated people who tell flat-out lies about all the things we're discussing? Well, what I'm curious, Jay, what you think of as some of the main lies they'll tell. I, I have ideas, but I'm curious what you would point to in particular. Well, the fact that carbon dioxide and our emission of it actually has any measurable control of the temperature of this planet, or that carbon dioxide is a pollutant. It's a a bad thing. And we want to have less of the molecule that really makes life livable. That's ridiculous. And yet there are academic scientists around the world saying that. I wouldn't think of it as a lie. I I would think of it more as this is a very wrong evaluation. So let's take the, there's some separate issues you raised, but let's take the issue of CO2 as a pollutant. So the way that's framed is this is something that is harming the health and safety of people in the society. And and what I would point to is what this is coming from is a few things. One is ignoring the benefits of the energy that comes with CO2. So you can't just view it as, oh, this is a pollutant without facing the fact that the CO2 is a byproduct of this thing that makes our life far better, including helps us clean up the naturally dirty environment, including through purifying naturally dirty water and making it accessible by pumping it around the world. So there's that form of benefit denial. 
There's also ignoring the clear benefits of CO2, right? Which is warming is beneficial in certain places. And certainly greening is overall very beneficial. And that's a big effect of CO2. There's also a distortion involved and it's called a pollutant, even though pollutant is something that, you know, directly harms human health in a certain concentration. CO2 doesn't do that at all, whatever its climate effects are. And then I think there's an overstatement of the climate effects. I wouldn't say they have no control at all. And I certainly wouldn't put that as a lie. I think the the effect is definitely overstated. But notice that most of my points here are methodological, is that this evaluation of it as a pollutant is ignoring the benefits of energy, ignoring the benefits of CO, fossil fuel energy, ignoring the benefits of CO2, uh, distorting the term pollution. And by showing that a given claim is based on an irrational method of thinking, you can invalidate that claim or at least call it into question. I'd love to see one of your debates uh, like this because- Well, uh, there are many. There are many online. You can watch them. And and the latest one is with a guy named Andrew Dessler from- um, Oh, I know. Oh my God. Texas A&M. From Texas A&M. I have no patience for him. Well, yeah, Give link, us, link uh, to that and look at the opening. It's on it's on YouTube. But if you see the opening, a lot of what I show is I say, hey, here are four principles to follow. And Dessler violates at least three of them. Yeah. Well, Tom, you'll link to all of these. Will you please? Yeah, we'll do so. Actually, it strikes me that they're violating many of the logical fallacies. You know, I mean, things like motive intent or, you know, ad hominem. I mean, they use all the logical fallacies if you actually look at them in depth. That is true. Uh, and that can be useful. But I, I find the most useful thing is to focus on the issues of method where there's a positive alternative that's meaningful. So let's let's say somebody makes an ad hominem attack. It is like, well, you know, Alex Epstein is a jerk, uh, you know, therefore you shouldn't listen to him or something like that. You can say, OK, that's an ad hominem. But it doesn't really move you forward. Versus saying, hey, I believe in full context evaluation. You need to look carefully at the benefits and side effects and look, they're ignoring the benefits or look, they're catastrophizing side effects. That's the kind of method I find most powerful to point out where where you have a positive too. So whenever I'm pointing out a logical fallacy or a fallacy, I like to always have, here's the positive alternative that I'm practicing. Mm -hmm. And how do you deal with people who say, oh, you're motivated by your funders or your donors or that's, uh, I mean, that's a motive intent logical fallacy, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And I think it it depends for the people on their particular situation. I think the more that you are kind of obviously clear and well-motivated, the less it comes up. So it doesn't come up with me as much as people think, certainly not when I speak, very few people have the guts to try to raise that in a Q&A period after I really kind of put their conventional views through the ringer. So I think that's one thing is just the more persuasive you are, the less that comes up. Obviously, logically, it's an ad hominem, but I would just, what, however you came to your views independently, say that. So in this case, I mean, my own story is that I didn't even know anyone in the fossil fuel industry when I came up with my views, let alone had a financial connection. And then, you know, once I developed these views, then yeah, for, then I viewed the fossil fuel industry as fundamentally moral and I wanted to do work with them, including work mm-hmm. that involved money. So I wanted to give speeches to their companies. I wanted to consult for them and have them pay me to help them develop better messaging and policies. And those are things I'm very proud of because it's an industry that I've and, and policies that I've independently identified as good. So I think even if someone is a lobbyist, which I'm not, but even if they're lobbyists, they should say, look, I'm not saying the fossil fuel industry is good 
because I work for them. I work for them because I believe they're good. And I regard what I'm doing as something I'm really proud of. And the other side doesn't have anything to say to that. So they're actually mixing up cause and effect. I mean, essentially. Yes. And that's what you need to emphasize is that you, Mm -hmm. you need to own, don't get offended to the point of being non-functional, but it is a totally offensive thing to say, Hey, Jay, Tom, the reason you're doing this, like you're doing something, you know, is ruining the world, but you're getting some fat paycheck. I mean, leaving aside how hilarious this is to those of us who know the funding situation in the world and how hard it is to get funding for, um, you know, pro fossil fuel causes in general. But regardless, that is an insult. That is an incredible insult, particularly to people who have, you are very scientifically minded, like you guys are to say, well, you are, you are surrendering your view of what's scientific and what's right in exchange for a paycheck from some unsavory person. That's an offensive thing. So getting too offended about it isn't effective, but saying like, yeah, I consider that ridiculous that I would do this. I would absolutely not do this. I would never accuse somebody of this unless I had really strong evidence. I came to these conclusions by myself and I would welcome the fossil fuel industry funding it more. That's what people should say. I would yeah. be proud to work with them if they're going to allow me to say what I think is true in terms of science and economics and morality and policy. And so now when I do certain things, you know, anything that I do, I just say to everyone, look, if you support something, like if you contribute to something that I'm doing, you have no editorial control over it. I make that very mm-hmm. explicit to people. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd like to hear more about some of the people that you've worked with. I mean, you've met some very prominent industry leaders on different sides of the energy spectrum. Could you describe a few of them and their different political positions that you've encountered? I'm happy to, but just give me an idea of what types of people, because they're people I've collaborated with. You're talking about people in well, the fossil there, there, fuel industry? Well, there are two people that are different and, and similar that I've learned a great deal about. One is Peter Thiel, who's the rare billionaire who appears in every way politically to be conservative. And then there's Elon Musk, who is, I wouldn't call him conservative because he games the system. On the other hand, you know, he's a free speech guy and uh, he's a, a different kind of cat to say Peter Thiel. I don't know if you've met Musk. I know you know Thiel. But, you know, a little bit about your opinions of both. Yeah, I don't know Elon personally. I I know Peter personally to a a certain extent. And I met him in 2006 and as a dinner of people actually who were interested in Ayn Rand in the Bay Area. Someone had read my writing back then, which didn't have anything to do with energy, but put together this dinner. And I didn't know who he was. I didn't know that he was the first outside investor in Facebook, which as people now know, made a lot of money if you were the first outside investor in Facebook. And he had already, I didn't know about him and PayPal until just right before the meeting, but he, he was an interesting guy and we had some interesting, you know, agreement and disagreement. Uh, but then, you know, I thought of him when I was publishing Moral Case and, and they asked for blurbs and I thought, you know, I really like one from Peter because he's a very successful guy who's a very independent thinker and is respected for that. And and I had since become much more familiar with his thinking and learned more insights that he had. And I wrote to him and to his credit and to my benefit, he agreed to read the book and then he wrote a very nice blurb of it. And we had a couple of conversations in the intervening years. And then I had Fossil Future and he agreed to read that and wrote a nice review of it. And then I asked him in, in 2014, we had also done an event, a launch event, which had been great, but tragically the recording got messed up. So the audio was just terrible, which I was so upset about. 
And then I just thought, well, let's, I'll ask him to do another one. And he, he actually lives fairly near me. I live in Laguna beach. He is in the Los Angeles area now, a significant portion of the year. And so he, he did it. And I asked another billionaire who's an amazing guy, Palmer Lucky, who's the guy who invented Oculus VR and sold it to Facebook for a couple billion dollars. Uh, he agreed to host it and to participate a bit. And he's, he's an amazing guy. He's like an innovator in defense and really smart, really principled guy. Yeah, both of those guys are you know superheroes in different ways. I know Peter a little bit better than I know Palmer. I don't know either of them super, super well. But it, it's very cool to have these people who are incredibly accomplished and independent thinking and willing to stand up and say things. And, you know, these guys, they, they, you know, they support a lot of interesting causes. And I think they try to help out a lot of pro-freedom people in the world, which I really like. Well, you have formed your own energy promotion organization. Could you tell our listeners what its goals are and how they might contribute to it a little more about it? Sure. So the corporation that I have is called the Center for Industrial Progress. That's that's the main company, although I don't do as much branded stuff under that name these days. It's usually just my name, Alex Epstein, or energy talking points. But the I started Center for Industrial Progress in 2011. The basic idea was to have a positive pro-human alternative to the green movement. At the time, I was using more of the terminology of industrial progress. Now I would use more human flourishing or human empowerment or both. You know, that's been the entity under which I've done all of my work in the past 11 years. And one of the premises that I had at the beginning is that I wanted it to be a for-profit organization because I, I know it's difficult to make nonprofits successful, although I think there's a really big role for them. It's, I think it's difficult to make them really high impact because it can be difficult to have the right metrics. And so I like the idea that I would start a company and that I would be successful enough where the world would pay me for my ideas. You look at the most influential people, the most influential writers, you know, they can make hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars on a book. They can make hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars speaking. At the time, I couldn't do that. But I thought, well, if I get good enough, I'll be able to do that. So, uh, you know, unfortunately I became quite successful and could make quite a bit of money writing, even more money speaking. Uh, but then over the years, I've, I, I did a lot of consulting behind the scenes on messaging for companies. That was a major revenue source. I've since stopped doing that almost totally. And now I do some funded work. Um, so the kind of two things that are funded that I do, again, people don't have any editorial control, but they like to support it. So one is if you go to industrialprogress.com slash accelerate, it's called the accelerator program. And what it does is it pays directly for things that accelerate my efforts. It doesn't pay for my rent and it doesn't pay for you know, my expenses or me. What it does is pay for investment in marketing and in research and development. So for example, during the pandemic, the accelerator money helped fund the book and, and get a lot of research that I needed for it. And it's also helped fund the promotion. Most recently, it's helped me send a lot of signed copies of the book to a lot of influential people. And those make a huge difference. So that people can contribute at industrialprogress.com slash accelerate. And then the other thing is I do this thing, Energy Talking Points, which you can check out at energytalkingpoints.com. And uh, that's a resource that's available for the general public. There's a newsletter that I highly recommend. And then I help out... Um, a lot of elected officials. I work with over a hundred offices, kind of advising them on messaging in different ways. So congressional, Senate, governor's offices. And then increasingly, uh, I also work with what I call energy champions. So people like you guys, where I share ideas with them, help share some of my approaches and, and vice versa and do that. And that, that also uh, has funding. That's a kind of a lot of kind of very financially successful people all give the same amount. So that probably won't be 
for most people. But if you're interested, you can email me at alex at alexepstein.com. Mm-hmm. Now, we'll actually include links to all of that. But for listeners who perhaps don't have the time to dig into the links, can you give them like a minute sort of overview as to how you would recommend they argue with their friends for the benefits of fossil fuel? Is there a sort of a one minute elevator pitch you could give? Yes, uh, but let me preface it with the elevator pitch to go to the website, energytalkingpoints.com and search for whatever you're looking for. So for example, if you mm-hmm. searched for fossil fuels, you might come upon the talking points on how fossil fuels make the earth better. And that's maybe six or seven or eight talking points. All the talking points I make for energy talking points are the length of a tweet. So they're very easily shareable. They're all self-contained. So you can take any one of them and share it anywhere. You're free to use them however you want. Uh, Give me credit where you can, but I just want to see them widely used. They all have references where necessary. So if you remember that, then you'll kind of be safe in any situation. Uh, But concretely, I think the most important thing actually in these conversations, which is you need to frame it in terms of, hey, do we agree to look at both the benefits and the side effects with precision? Because if you don't do that, then by default, people will just look at the negatives of fossil fuels and tend to exaggerate them. And therefore, if you can say, like, if I said, hey, Tom, let's say you were hustle, say, hey, yeah, let's definitely talk about fossil fuels and climate. But first, would you agree that we have to look carefully at the benefits and side effects of all the alternatives? We can't just look at the benefits of solar and the negative side effects of coal. And, Mm -hmm. And anyone would say yes to that, right? Nobody's going to say no. And then what happens is that will frame the discussion in a much more constructive way where then you can talk about the benefits of fossil fuels. And so then I make these points on the talking points I just mentioned, but things like, hey, you know, low cost, reliable energy is essential to human flourishing because it allows us to use machines to make ourselves productive and prosperous. The world is desperately short of low cost, reliable energy. We have 3 billion people using less electricity than a typical American refrigerator. Fossil fuels are uniquely good at providing low-cost, reliable energy. They provide 80% of the world's energy, and they're still growing fast, uh, particularly in parts of the world like China that care the most about low-cost, reliable energy. And then also low-cost, reliable energy helps keep us safer from climate. Did you know that the rate of climate-related disaster death has gone down 98% over the last 100 years, in large part because we have fossil fuel heating, fossil fuel air conditioning, fossil fuel irrigation, et cetera? You know, that's just those are three or four or five points that are very powerful. The framing of it is very important. So that's why I'd recommend the framing and then these essential facts on energytalkingpoints.com. And and all those facts, what's interesting about them, they're very hard to deny. I know Jay was talking about distortions and lies, and those do happen. But all those things I mentioned, no one can really challenge. And so the problem is people aren't bringing up those facts. They're not considering them mostly because the issue is framed incorrectly, but you as an individual can frame things correctly. And then I highly recommend in in Fossil Future at the end, share resources that frame things effectively. So you can even say, hey, I heard this really interesting interview. Jay and Tom interviewed this guy, Alex Epstein, who wrote this book, Fossil Future. Uh, Can I send it to you? This guy had this idea that you you need to look at the full context of benefits and side effects of fossil fuels. And you just say something like that, And someone will be interested in it, but the key is to recommend something that is not only factually accurate, but frames things effectively. Because if you just give somebody a set of factual claims, it's hard to trust them. But if somebody, if it frames the issue correctly, it'll help people think about it more rationally, but it'll also make the factual claims more trustworthy. So I I appreciate, Jay, your in particular endorsement of fossil future. And I can just say, if people share fossil future, I think you'll get really, really good results because it really does frame things in an effective way that's hard to argue with. 
And once you frame this issue correctly, you guys mentioned at the beginning, it's kind of insane if you're really looking at the benefits and side effects of fossil fuels. It's insane to think that we should get rid of fossil fuels. So it's really all about getting them to frame the issue in the right way. And then the facts are fairly straightforward. Mm -hmm. One of the troubles, of course, is that a lot of these people are thoroughly neurotic. You can't actually get them to calm down and think rationally. So, I mean, if you're dealing with an environmentalist, for example, who might say, well, there's no benefits to fossil fuels. It's a terrible, horrible thing and blah, blah, blah. You know, you're actually wasting your time talking to them, wouldn't you say? Then stop. Yeah, then you can stop. I think about persuasion in, in three buckets. And I, when I've done consulting uh, more in the past, I, I talk about you want to be able to turn supporters into champions. You want to take people who already are aligned and make them more effective at supporting so they can be a, a magnet for others and really change people's minds. You want to turn non-supporters into supporters. So these are people who aren't necessarily hostile, but don't agree with your view. You want to persuade them. And then I often put it as you want to neutralize attackers. So if they're totally invested in your position is wrong, that's their identity. You can't persuade everyone. I think you can persuade more people than most people think, but you can't persuade everyone. So if you think about neutralizing, that's usually in a public context. Like, okay, I'll debate this person. I'll debate Bill McKibben, but I'm not going to, I don't think I'm going to persuade him for various reasons. And then in person, when I find somebody who's really not open to things, I just leave really quickly because really what I need to do is we, there are plenty of people who are open-minded who and, and active-minded, uh, just as importantly, who haven't heard this way of thinking and are open to it. And the more of them they are, the more these attacker types will become marginalized because the attacker types just, they can act neurotically, as you say, because there's this moral monopoly against fossil fuels where everyone thinks it's okay to just trash fossil fuels and, and attribute all these terrible things to them. And there's no consequence to doing that. Whereas once, once people really start thinking about the benefits of fossil fuels as well, that's not going to be socially acceptable. And you don't need to worry about these people who are just cashing in on the fact that right now it's easy to attack fossil fuels and you don't have to do so with any kind of rigor. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, on that note, we have to end. I'd love to go on, but we're out of time. That was wonderful, Alex. So our guest today has been Alex Epstein, a philosopher and energy expert who's the author of the new book, Fossil Future. And so we'll be linking to that under the podcast when it goes on podcast on Monday. So Alex, thanks so much for being on our show today. Thanks to both of you. We covered a lot of fun ground that I don't usually get to cover. So uh, I'm going to share this with a lot of my followers and I hope they enjoy it. Okay, that's great. So this is Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris signing out from the other side of the story.